All right. Welcome, Ramsey. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Of course. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey, both as a science educator and, um, you know, any of the history behind who you are? Yeah, sure. Um, I have been a science teacher for the last 20, 21 years. I started teaching in San Francisco in 2001 um, at a large school, co-ed school there. And I taught chemistry and biology and now I teach at a school for the past seven years in Sonoma County. Um, and I teach physics and chemistry and biology and engineering and all kinds of stuff here. I started uh, my journey to start as a teacher came out of uh, the medical school track. So medical school didn't work out. Um, and then I had a I had a science, a canon of science understanding and preparing for uh, that path that I then transferred over into teaching. Um, and went on to get my master's and PhD at University of San Francisco while teaching there. Um, so that's sort of a general history of my uh, yeah, past of and current journey state as, a as a teacher. So, um, I'm, by the way, the the subjects that you teach, I am fascinated by. My daughter is currently in physics, and she is. It's the it's the roller coaster of love and life and hate and life when it comes yeah. to physics. Oh. So, <laughs> Thank you so much for what you do. Thank um, you. So some people may not know that you have a TED Talk, mm -hmm. um, which is fantastic. But in that TED Talk, uh, you share the true role of an educator is to cultivate curiosity. Um, so I'm curious what you mean by that and how we could do that when we're faced with so many obstacles right now in education. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that the classroom is one of the only spaces where we, we kind of sometimes forget the natural tendencies that we have as people to be drawn towards things. Um, so if you think about any story, any book, any show, anything we do or we look at where we're engaged, the information that explains the phenomena comes after the presentation of the phenomena. So whether it's a, you know, like I said, a book or a good movie, a great conversation, a great riddle, there's always some sort of mystery box where the information exists and you don't really necessarily know what's inside it. And um, it isn't until later that the contents are revealed, but it is not until the, the person wants those contents to be revealed. Um, but in the classroom, sometimes we forget this because of time constraints and because of this pseudo idea that we it's going to take more time if we don't tell students information right away. So you see this a lot in science education where you'll uh, there'll be a lecture and there'll be some information given there'll be practice problems whatever it may be and then the lab occurs yeah. and then the lab is supposed to facilitate a deeper understanding of what the lecture was on but the problem with that is it doesn't ask the question do they want to do the lab and it also rips the the mystery of what's going to happen in the lab from the students mm -hmm. um and we kind of forget that nothing else in the world works that way. There literally isn't a single thing that were driven by engagement that I can think of where the information is presented first and then the exploration happens second. So in terms of timing, it really isn't. There is no difference in timing. Um, all it is is switching when things happen. So it's saying the lab is now going to be about building questions or the exploration or the activity is all about 
cultivating curiosity or building questions naturally first, and then the mentor or the teacher will come in to resolve and quench that curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, it's ap- absolutely no difference in timing, um, but it's a harder way to teach, and it puts, it puts students in a position where they have questions, um, and those questions guide the lecture. So there's a little bit less control. So I think when people say they don't have enough time, that's all, that's all kind of a cop out for I don't want to change the way I do things because I have more control when I do it this way. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious when you do the lab first and then you have, um, the, that facilitates the conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to kind of dig into the, the nitty gritty about why things happened in the lab. Do you ever do a lab, a, do the lab again? Um, as a way of closure so that students could then um, look at it through a different lens now that, you know, they've had the the mystery, they've had it, they've gone through that experience, um, kind of a way to wrap it up or reflect it differently. Yeah, absolutely. So if you go to my website, cyclesoflearning.com, you will see a, and you'll see a book uh, that I wrote that's based on the TED Talk and then a lot, lots of blog posts. Yeah. Um, and that whole, the, most of the writing I do is on that exact thing. It's mm-hmm. taking kind of the hero's journey sort of metaphor um, and layering it on top of inquiry lesson design. So if you think of your standard hero's journey, the the hero is called to adventure, right? Mm-hmm. So in education, we would say we're going to spark their curiosity first, right? That's a call to adventure. The hero then is approached with some sort of threshold challenge. And in education, we would say... Um, we're going to ask them to explore content. That's the first lab, mm-hmm. right? The purpose of the threshold challenge is to drive them towards some sort of mentor that's going to give them more information to color that in so that they can they can then move forward. That would be the lecture after the lab, right? Mm-hmm. And then the hero goes on and is transformed. So that would be the second lab you're talking about where now they have um, more information to do another variation of the lab or some new thing that's going to require them to use the algorithms or whatever happened from the mentorship. And then the hero returns home to be judged. And that's sort of the, the evaluation piece. So yeah, the way I always do it is there's the inquiry lab at the beginning. There is, uh, there's a lecture, there's practice, and then there's an extension lab. Um, and a lot of times in, in your traditional classroom, you have that lecture, then you have the practice and then you have the lab. Um, and then you're also dealing with lack of motivation and you're dealing with sort of this inauthentic piece that actually ends up taking more time than moving in this flow. Um, so a lot of times that extension lab ends up being part of the assessment. So, gotcha. yeah. so do you there. feel like people don't necessarily, um, this isn't as commonplace because it requires educators to one, be really strong in their content area. And right now that's, that's challenging with the state of education where we're in. Right. Or two, Mm -hmm. that perhaps people are afraid of the, of the questions that they may not know the answers themselves. And then what do you do next? Well, I don't know. I I think I, I don't know if it's not that commonplace. I think these structures are in place. So if you look at the next gen science standards, Mm -hmm. which are standards, the pedagogy that's often uh, uh, promoted along with the standards, and I think it's important to tease the standards versus the pedagogy out, is the 5E learning cycle, which is explore, explain, you know, extend and evaluate. So that explore and extend are those labs one and two. 
and the explain is the is the lecture. So I think that this has made it into the um, the narrative of science education um, in terms of kind of baby steps towards inquiry. So I think people are are aware that if you're going to teach science according to the standards, that any professional development that you're going to get is going to be leveraging some sort of 5e variation um in terms of why it might not be happening places where it's not happening i think there are larger issues so larger more infrastructure type things i think it's it's easy to want to say like it's broken and this stuff's not happening but i think really it is um but we're as a culture kind of trying to figure out like what place do ap's have in this stuff Mm-hmm. Um, how do we prepare students for college, you know, especially with AI now, right. um, there's so much things that we're offloading to our machines that the, the concept of inquiry is even more important. Right. So, right. And I, I actually want to touch on that just a minute because I think one of the, um, one of the things that we're noticing a lot about AI is particularly as it's been evolving over the last several months, um, is the quality of question determines quite a bit of the result that you're going to get through the mm-hmm. AI, right? So mm-hmm. um, how do you feel like AI is going to start to change educa- education and how do we start to ask better questions? Because clearly that's what's going to lead to perhaps some better answers. Yeah, I'm, I don't have an answer to that question yet because I'm still just tinkering and figuring it out. Mm-hmm. Um I think the question is more meta, which is uh, how can we, as from an instructional design perspective, ask better questions? So I think what I mean is I think the wrong question is how can we build AI to check for plagiarism and AI and all that kind of stuff? I think those are the wrong, tired, boring questions. Um, I think the right questions are um, how how is this challenging the way that I approach the way that I designed my classroom mm-hmm. um, and how is this challenging uh, the way that I think about my lesson design and the way that I teach um, and how can I leverage it and all that kind of stuff in a very, very like tailored way. I think one thing that's, that's kind of counterintuitive is I'm moving away from a lot of technology in some senses mm-hmm. to promote writing when I need it um, and then bringing it in, for the things I need it for. So I think that, I think that the victim mentality is a very, is alive and well in yeah. this sort of last couple of months in education in certain circles. And those might be the same circles where you'll see people say, um, we don't have enough time to do inquiry because we have to push through a curriculum and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, there are so many ridiculously creative, we could talk for hours about the really amazing creative things that are happening right now. Um, with well, it. Like, can you give an example of at least one, just because I know people are going to want to know that that's going to be your Well, you can go on my blog and see, I, I blogged about it quite a bit. I just wrote a blog last week on like top 10 ways that you can use AI in the classroom. So cyclesoflearning.com, you'll see it as the first blog right there, but I'll pull from it some things that I've been using. Sure. Um, for example, right now in my, in my biochemistry class, students are in the process of, um, hypothetically developing proteins that fold in specific ways to 
sort of simulate the process of synthetic medicine. So I gave students a challenge of building a protein out of like 40, 40, 50 amino acids that would fold into a certain shape to sort of simulate a insulin receptor for a treatment for type 2 diabetes, kind of as a thought experiment. So they developed the amino acid sequence, but we all know that now with uh, mRNA medications, what they would actually do is need to need to get the mRNA sequence for that protein, and that would then be the medication. Our body would then create the protein, fold it, and use it for whatever we want in our body. So they needed to backtrack and get the mRNA sequence. But anyone who's familiar with biology would know that it's fifty, it's one hundred and fifty uh, RNA base bases. Uh-huh. for 50 amino acid protein. So there aren't a lot of good tools online for, I mean, they could do it by hand. They could just go into their codon sheet and take each amino acid and turn it into its associated three-letter base. But, you know, I first said, hey, why don't you go to ChatGPT and ask ChatGPT if it will take your 50 amino acid protein that you designed and tell you what the RNA sequence would be so that you can have that medication. Yeah. In this, and it wouldn't do it, didn't do it correctly. Uh-huh. Um, it wasn't doing it correctly. So then we said, okay, but we know that it has the information to do it because we know that the most applicable use of the OpenAI database right now is DeepMind's work with protein folding. So we're like, it's got to be there. So instead of just asking ChatGPT to, to write the answer, we asked ChatGPT to write a, Java, a piece of JavaScript that if an protein sequence in one letter codes was added, you will give us the mRNA sequence. Um, so then it was, it did that way better. It wrote the code for a system. And then we took that code and put it in p5.js, which just reads JavaScript. And then that did it perfectly. Oh, so wow. that's an example of it. Like it's not, it, 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 the, the ability for it to answer questions is limited, but the ability for it to write code to answer questions is 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 much more robust. Mm. So doing that, and then students had to go into the code and figure out ways in which they could um, alter it. So, for example, what it did right away is it for simplicity. If there's 50 amino acids, you know, each of those amino acids might have multiple codons because of gene mutation evolution tendencies. And the the program went through and just picked one codon for each to make the code simpler. So the students went in and created some a, a randomization where it would then pull from other codons without even knowing coding because it it did the it did the archaic piece of it and then they had to go and investigate it. So that's one example in physics class. Um, you we were doing things like you know asking asking ChatGPT to create a code to simulate. Um, a ball falling on Jupiter side by side, a ball falling on Earth with no air resistance, and then did the same thing, put that into P5JS, and it, it created simulations. And then all the kids did that, and kids had to circulate and watch these simulations and try and guess what what they asked it. So kids would ask ChatGPT to write a simulation um, about something related to Newton's laws. Mm-hmm. And then the kids would circulate and look at all one another's and then try and guess what was the question that was asked. What was the code that was asked? Uh, yes. Yes. You know, like that. yeah. Being able to, to reframe and have a different, trying to guess that question, which then that's, I'm, I'm still going to circle back to this because I think it's part of your book in that 
that you have on your site, which I think is really great, is the idea around asking good questions, how to ask better questions and get that process going. How do you facilitate that with students? Um, Because I think so many times students start with a question, at least this has been my experience, students will start with a question, um, but they may not know where to go next or how to adjust their question to get what what they're looking for. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't do a lot of that. I do a lot of, um, you know, I, I do a lot of trying to manipulate the students into asking the question I want them to ask and then putting them in a position where they have to figure it out. And I think that that is, that is the art of having a structured curriculum and also teaching this way, which is like, I want them, I want them to be like, well, wait, why, why is the bottom of this linky not moving when the top has been released? Yes. So I want them to ask rack. that question. I don't want them to ask any other question. I want right. them to ask that. And then I want to say, oh, but by the way, the whole lesson plan today is designed around you answering that question. Ooh, so right. I think that that allows it. Um, yeah. I think we can get kind of in the weeds with teaching. I mean, there's all there's the right question institute. There's all kinds of stuff. Right, right. But we can get in the weeds with that rather than just saying asking questions is an iterative process. And we are just going to model for them that. So in me showing them how to ask those questions, you know, it, it models the concept of, Oh, it didn't answer it correctly. So I'm going to make an adjustment, but there's so many different ways to do that, that, you know, I don't know that teaching kids how to ask good questions is not really part of what I do. Tricking them into asking the ones I want them to ask is, and it's it, it's sort of a different way of looking at it. Well, and I also think it's really important what you just said, because earlier in our conversation, you were talking about how um, you're flipping the model and it's it can be um, a little disconcerting to people who have not done it before because it opens up for the students to be asking the questions and then having that facilitation go on. But what you're really doing is crafting and providing the boundaries based around the questions that you're having them explore. So there's, um, I think what's what's amazing about that is that you're providing a framework so that it's mm-hmm. not so scary. It's not the the wild wild west, right? You have a purpose. Absolutely, and I think that's that's important to understand too. Well, I love what I quoted in the book, but John Stewart uh, has a great quote where he was talking about like the Daily Show back in the day and like why it was so successful and why it was they were able to be so creative. And he was like, it's through structure that I find the safety to be creative. So I I like that concept of the students feel like it's chaotic, but but they know that there's a structure to what's happening. And it's captured in the aesthetics of the handbook that they have and what when, when the assignments are due and Everything that could possibly be structured mechanically is, which opens up the space for what happens within that container for them to feel feel captured. And I think that's where like project-based learning and stuff like that, when it's not done correctly, can can just fail. Um, and you know, there's so, so I think that that that's another conversation. But I think that there's so much that can be lost Absolutely. when we um, when you subscribe to something like that without thinking about the inquiry cycle as well. For sure. For sure. And I think, you know, that's, we know that as creative individuals, that when you place boundaries, it, it actually enhances the creativity rather than diminishing it. So Mm -hmm. to kind of parallel to this, how do you find, 
curiosity and uh, creativity intertwining itself within the STEM fields, because, you know, there's all this big debate between STEM and STEAM. And honestly, I don't necessarily think there needs to be, but I would, I'm curious as to your take on how creativity and curiosity connect um, through these fields. Um, and I think, I think that CAD is a big place for that. So, you know, in physics, for example, uh, Tinkercad just released a uh, sim lab in it where you can, you can create 3d models of things and you can give them physics. So I can create a model of a box with another box on top of it, right? Using CAD. And, um, and then I can give, I can give the top box gravit physics and I can make the bottom box static and then I can throw objects at it and I can watch the way that the top one responds to it. Right. And then I can change its mass and its density and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then I can print those and then do that in real life and see how much the simulation matches what we did there. Right. So you have, you have a technology component, you have an engineering component, you have a art component because they're making it. And you, so you have all those things, but in reality, like that suits it because that piece of technology just happens to be simulating what we're talking about in class around dynamics and Newton's laws. And it requires sort of that ability to kind of unite those tasks, you know? And so I've done, I think CAD is one place where that shows up a lot. I think that, that uh, AI's ability to write code gives us the creative freedom to kind of think about the code differently Yes. And analyze it differently through a different lens rather than a, I need to understand the difference between um, classes and objects and uh, Boolean statements. I now understand uh, how to investigate the code and look for where I think this action might exist and how to manipulate that and, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, which is a different creative way of looking at the technology. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to honor your time today. So um, but there's a question that I usually ask all of our guests. Um, I'm going to adjust it slightly. Um, if there's one thing that you would like to people to know about curiosity and the inquiry process and teaching, what would it be? Um, I would like it to be that, uh, that there's, you know, go home after a long day teaching and watch an episode of your favorite show and watch it in the first five minutes, imagine that they tell you every single thing that happens in the episode really fast. And then you watch the show and then reflect on how engaged you will be. And I, you probably won't be that engaged. Um, and then know that when we don't delay the direct instruction, that that's essentially what we're doing in the classroom to our students. Um, and just remember that, you know, just because it's in a school doesn't mean that it's not following the same tenets of everything else that exists and already is engaging. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, where can people find you and stay in touch? Just my website is cyclesoflearning.com and all my contact information is there. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. All right.